Hello, all you hardheads. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours. Welcome to the Hardheaded Sports Podcast, episode number 38, hosted by me, Nick Ryan. I hope you guys had had a fantastic weekend. I am feeling so much better. On Saturday, I was suffering from the effects of my second dose of the coronavirus vaccine from Pfizer, and I was feeling like hot garbage, and I said, you know what, I should use whatever energy that I have to get out a show, and we got out a show, and I'm very pleased about that, but I'm happy to be feeling better, I'm happy to be delivering a more full-length show today with a variety of topics, and I'm just excited to be making content again at full strength. Nobody likes ever being sick, it's never a fun experience, it doesn't matter how sick you are, just nobody likes it, that's a universal truth that is a fact of the universe i hope you guys had a fantastic weekend and i hope that none of you <laughs> i hope none of you uh, wasted money on the jake paul ben Askren fight i wasn't really planning on talking about this today i i had no plans to talk about it but it kind of just jumped into my mind about you know the past weekend and look it's a novelty fight it's a novelty boxing fight i learned my lesson with these a long time ago I learned my lesson with Mayweather versus Pacquiao. That was the fight. That was the one fight that kind of ruined big boxing matches for me. I had never really grown up a boxing fan, and I'm not really a boxing fan, so maybe that's part of the reason why, admittedly, but that was the one fight that kind of turned me off these big-name box office boxing matches. It was the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight from, oh, how many years ago was it? Six or seven years ago at this point? It was a long time ago, but that's the fight that made me learn. I was so excited going into it. The hype was unreal. I'm like, Pacquiao is going to deliver Mayweather his first loss. And we got to the fight and it was an absolute snooze. It was a snooze fest of a fight, which me not being the boxing fan going into it really didn't understand that that's the way that Mayweather fights. He's a very defensive fighter. He allows his opponents to wear themselves out before start to, before beginning to go on the attack. And that's exactly what happened during the fight. And it was a fight that was ultimately very disappointing and very boring to the average viewer, which the average viewer is only going to come in for the big novelty fights. And that's what Jake Paul versus Ben Askren was. And people are surprised and angry when the fight only lasted 30 seconds and their $50 or $60 pay-per-view purchase just went out the window. And obviously the beginning uh, card or, or, or the beginning activities weren't that great either. There was more involved than just the fight. But regardless, you know, I learned my lesson. I learned not to pay for these types of fights, especially a YouTube star versus a washed-up dad body UFC fighter. Now, Ben Askren could probably beat the crap out of me. That's not saying much, but he looked unprepared. He looked out of shape. He looked unconfident. He didn't look good, and people were rightfully angry. They felt like they got scammed. They felt like it was rigged, and I'm just over here saying, thank God I didn't spend money on that because I learned my lesson a long time ago. I learned that most of these big box office fights that are supposed to draw in viewership for one reason or the other are more often than not extremely disappointing. Mayweather McGregor was like that. To some extent, the Mike Tyson fight was like that. Although, watching Mike Tyson was not necessarily about the result of the fight as it was just being able to watch Mike Tyson in the ring at his age at this time. That was that was a fun fight to watch. But, hey, I hope you didn't you know waste your money on that fight. And if you did, I'm sorry, but you should have expected more. And hopefully fights like this will 
keep people from you know wasting their money in the future you know a lot of it is about the investment that gets made by these fighters to come in and i'm sure jake paul made an extremely large amount of money i'm sure ben Askren, even though he got knocked out in about 30 seconds he made an extremely large amount of money and i'm just sitting here saying hey you probably could have watched the stream you could have pirated the stream and you could have you know not wasted your money on three seconds of media 30 seconds of mediocre boxing but not to rub salt in the wound, I just thought it was funny how people were extremely angry with the result of the fight, and I'm sitting here saying, I don't know how you expected any different. Now, I'm not talking about the result, I'm talking about the reality that it is a novelty fight, and I learned my lesson, as I said, a long time ago when it comes to novelty boxing fights. So, let's get into the show today. We are going to start off the show today with the second half of the Hard-Headed Sports mock draft for the 2021 NFL draft. We covered picks 1 through 16 on Saturday. We are going to cover picks 17 through 32 today, picking up right where we left off, accounting for trades and everything that happened with the first half of the mock draft. So if you're interested in figuring out which teams I think are going to take which players and picks 1 through 16, you should go watch that video. I'll post a little card that should be right up here. And I'm sorry for those of you on Spotify that are like, hey, this is audio. I don't see what you're pointing at. It's right here, ladies and gentlemen, top right-hand corner of your screen. Just think about it. Click it. Do interact with it. You know what to do. Uh, picks 17 through 32. Again, accounting for trades. I, again, again, I wanted to make sure that I took some extra time to make sure that I feel confident about these picks because, as I said on Saturday, I feel like this draft is volatile. I think that a lot is going to happen. I think anything can happen. It's not as chalk as everybody thinks it is. There are a bunch of ways that teams can go this season or go in this draft. So let's just go ahead and get into it, picking up with the Raiders at number 17, who are going to take Alex Leatherwood, tackle from Alabama. Look, I was going to project a defensive end or defensive tackle to go to the Raiders in this spot before the Raiders completely blew up their offensive line. They lost three out of the five starters. They traded Trent Brown. They traded Gabe Jackson, and they let go of another. Can't quite remember who that was. Three out of the five starters for uh, the Las Vegas Raiders last season on the offensive line are gone. The Raiders are going to have to. I would imagine that they take a tackle or a guard in the first round of the draft. Otherwise, I'm not quite sure what they're doing. Again, I probably would have projected a defensive end or defensive tackle to go to the Raiders in the spot before they completely destroy their offensive line. But if they don't go for an offensive lineman in the first round to try and rebuild that offensive line, then I have no idea what John Cruden is doing over there and, and Mayock is doing over there in Las Vegas. Going on to the Dolphins at number 18 who are going to take Jeremiah Owusu-Karamoa. I have liked this kid for a long time. I have been saying that the Dolphins should probably draft this kid if he's available. Look, linebacker out of Notre Dame, he's extremely quick. He's versatile. He goes left to right. He goes uh, all over the field with extreme ease. He could be very good in protection as well. Not pass protection, pass defense, excuse me. And the real the real kicker here is that the Dolphins' worst group on defense last year was the linebacking core, and that was before they moved on from Kyle Van Noy. The Dolphins had an extremely good defense, number one in takeaways, I think number one in points allowed too, if I'm remembering correctly. They had an extremely good defense, a Super Bowl caliber defense, and that worst spot on that defense was the linebacker core. And since they moved on from Kyle Van Noy, it only makes sense that they take a linebacker with their second pick in the first round of the NFL draft. I think that Kawusu Awusu Kamor 
Nakamura is going to be available at the slot. I think Parsons is going early in the draft, as I said on Saturday. There are some other linebackers available, but I think Ousu uh, Karamo is more of what the Dolphins are looking for with this specific pick. Now, the Washington football team at number 19 will be taking Mac Jones, quarterback from Alabama. A lot of people may be controversial, may be, may be controversial on this pick. I think that even with the loaded quarterback room that Washington has at the moment, consisting of Fitzpatrick, Allen, and Heineke, I think that the Washington football team are still looking for that quarterback of the future. Now, whether that's Heineke, whether that's Allen, I think Allen is probably the odd man out in the situation. I think they're more than likely looking for a quarterback that they can sit for a while until he matures. And even though Mac Jones is probably the most mature quarterback in terms of age, he only did play one season at Alabama, and he was surrounded with a load of talent. I would be very interested to see another kind of Miami Dolphins situation with the Washington football team in which Ryan Fitzpatrick was able to mentor another young quarterback. That's kind of who he is at this point in the career. And I think Mac Jones would be welcomed and I think it would be a good landing spot for him in Washington. And I'm thinking that if he's not taken at this point, which in my mock, he isn't taken at this point, Washington would be a good selection for Mac Jones and vice versa. Moving on to the Patriots at number 20. Now, if you're wondering why the Patriots at at 20, that's because in the first half of the mock draft, I had them trading with the Bears. The Bears traded up to get Trey Lance. The Patriots traded down to 20. And with the 20th selection in the draft, the Patriots will take Quiddy Pay defensive end out of Michigan. Can you remember the last time that the Bears had a dominant pass rusher? Or excuse me, that the Patriots had a dominant pass rusher. I think Richard Seymour, Chandler Jones, those are the names that come to mind. So the Patriots really don't have a solidified pass rush. They don't have that scary edge rusher that Quiddy Pay is. They don't have that type of rusher, and I think Quiddy Pay will fill that role tremendously and help a defense that was good last year is going to be returning a lot of veteran players but could really use some youth on the defensive line. I really am excited about that selection, actually. Quiddy Pay going to the Patriots at number 20 after the Patriots trade down with the Chicago Bears. Moving on to the Colts at number 21, they will select Jalen Phillips, defensive end Miami. Now, a lot of people are debating on whether Gregory Rousseau or Jalen Phillips is going to be the best defensive end prospect coming out of Miami. I think Jalen Phillips is better than Gregory Rousseau, and the Colts have lost not only Danico um, Autry, I think his name is, but they also lost Justin Houston on the defensive end or the defensive line. They're going to need a strong 3-4 defensive end to make up for that. I would imagine that they go defensive end in the first round and they will take Jalen Phillips defensive end out of Miami. Moving on to the Titans at number 22, they will select Rondell Moore, wide receiver from Purdue. The Titans lost Corey Davis, Corey Davis and Adam Humphreys in the offseason. And the wide receiver core in Tennessee wasn't really that fantastic to begin with. They do have some other players available there, but I think that they are going to need weapons. Look, Derrick Henry cannot carry that offense forever. Ryan Tannehill is going to need some other weapons to throw to. And Rondell Moore, even though he only played three games last season uh, with Purdue because of you know the Big Ten re-opting, opting in, opting out, re-opting in that ginormous situation, uh, he showed a lot. In that game, I think he three touchdowns, 270 yards in those three games. So he's a fantastic prospect. I imagine he's got elite speed. He's got really good separation. And I think the Titans should take a chance on Rondell Moore. The Jets at number 23 with their second selection in the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft will take Wyatt Davis guard out of Ohio State University. 
I think Wyatt Davis is probably a second round prospect, but I don't think the Jets are good drafters, so they'll probably take a guard at the selection. And I think that Wyatt Davis at this point is probably the best guard available, at least in my mock draft. Uh, obviously, Rayshon Slater went early, and a lot of the other top offensive line prospects are tackles. So Wyatt Davis moving up, uh, or, or probably you know rising up in the stock of the draft to be taken by the Jets at number 23, who do have a pretty porous offensive line, apart from Mekhi Becton on the left side. You put Wyatt Davis, another young player on that side as well. It's, you're going to have a young line, but you're going to have more or less a pretty efficient line, at least one side of the uh, one side of the quarterback. The other side is going to need a lot of work, but I think that whoever, whichever quarterback the Jets take with a number two overall pick, they're going to need to protect him. I think Wyatt Davis is probably your best bet at guard in that situation. Moving on to the Steelers at 24, who are going to take Najee Harris running back out of Alabama. Remember when the Steelers had an efficient running game? Probably James Conner a couple years ago was the most efficient that running game has ever been. And I would argue, and I think a lot of people would argue, that the lack of a running game is what kind of doomed the offense for the Steelers last season, considering that Big Ben is getting older. Juju Smith-Schuster wasn't getting open as much. They need a running game, and they need a big, heavy, power-dominant running back. And Najee Harris, I think, would be perfect in that role. Reignite the toughness and the grittiness that is the Pittsburgh Steelers. No more of the funny business, no more of the TikToks, no more of the egotistical issues. Pittsburgh Steelers need to go back to being a dominant, scary football team, a team that is going to run you over. And I see a lot of Jerome Bettis and Najee Harris, and I think that would be a really welcomed addition to the Steelers football team, taking Najee Harris at number 24. Moving on a little bit faster now, I'm talking way too much. Jaguars at 25 are going to take Christian Barmore, defensive tackle Alabama. A couple of Alabama guys going back to back. I've liked Christian Barmore to the Jaguars for a while now. The Jaguars have an awful defensive line. Uh, Christian Barmore is going to be a huge presence at huge uh, presence at defensive tackle to plug up the running game, which was a huge downer. Really, just the entire defense for Jacksonville was bad last year. But I think Barmore is going to do a good job at plugging the gap. He can rush the passer as well at defensive tackle. I think that's a that's a surefire pick at 25 if Barmore is still available. The Browns at 26 are going to take Zayvon Collins, linebacker out of Tulsa. And I've said this on the show multiple times before. If there's one thing that the Browns showed me last year and one thing that stuck out to me, it was the divisional round against the Chiefs in which the Browns looked completely outmatched at linebacker. The linebackers weren't fast enough to compete with Kansas City's receivers. And if those teams are going to meet again, which more likely they will, Cleveland is going to need some faster linebackers. Zayvon Collins is lightning quick. He can play top to bottom all over the place, kind of like Caruso Amora or Wusu Karamoa that I projected going to the Dolphins earlier. Similar type of player. He's got much better upside, I think, in terms of what he can potentially be. He's got a higher a higher ceiling, but he's got to do excuse me a lot more to reach it. Browns take linebacker Zayvon Collins at number 26. Ravens at 27 take Jason Owe, edge rusher from Penn State uh, defensive end, or Kadarius Toney, wide receiver from Florida. I know that it's a mock draft and I got to make a decision here, but I really can't decide what the Ravens are going to do here. I think I think they'll probably elect for Oa out of Penn State. They lost Judon and um, they lost Judon and a name that I'm actually forgetting at the moment. They lost multiple edge rushers on the defense from last season. And even though the Ravens desperately need wide receiver help, you can get that in day two and day three. They'll probably elect for Oa, who is going to be a bit of a 
how do I say this, a, a prospect, a, um, a raw prospect. He's going to need a little bit of work, but the upside is there. I think they'll take Jason Owa. Saints at 28 are going to take Trayvon Moerig, safety out of TCU, the first safety taken off the board. There's not really a strong safety class this year in the NFL draft. And the Saints need some safety help. Look, they re-signed Marcus Williams. He is not going to be there forever, though. I believe they they tagged Mar- Marcus Williams, so he could leave potentially. And he needs help. He needs help on the backside of the defense. So I think taking a safety there is probably the smart decision. A lot of mocks actually have Morig going there, and I completely agree. I think that would be the smart play for the Saints. I'd be surprised if they take anybody else. The Packers at 29, going to take Rashad Bateman, wide receiver out of Minnesota. And I know it was painfully obvious that the wide receiver... That the Packers should have taken a wide receiver last draft in the first round, and I would be really incensed if they don't take a wide receiver in the first round of this draft as well. They have multiple free agents on the wide receiver uh, on the wide receiver a court coming up in subsequent seasons. They're going to need a good number two weapon. Bateman is tall. He's fast. He would go to be a good number two to Devontae Adams. They need to take a wide receiver. I think they'll take Bateman out of Minnesota. And he's going to be closer to home, so to speak. He can play in the cold. Uh, Bills at 30 are going to take Jam- uh, Jamin Davis, or Jarman Davis, I think it is. I might have a misspelling there in my notes. Linebacker for Kentucky. Somebody that's really come on in the uh, late draft process uh, leading up to the draft. He's really come on. The Bills linebacker core was not so good. They re-signed Matt Milano. Tremont Edmonds had a very down year. They're probably going to look to move on from him soon. They're going to need another explosive linebacker on that core next to Matt Milano. So Matt Milano was basically carrying the load for the Bills linebacker core last season. I think they take linebacker Jarman Davis uh, from Kentucky to try and fill that gap even more. The Chiefs at 31 take Jackson Carmen. Guard Clemson, we all know what the Chiefs' problem was in the Super Bowl. And granted, they did a lot to address that in free agency. They got multiple offensive linemen, but some of them on one-year deals. And even though there is a long-term investment in Joe Thune, you're going to need another guard there. Um, on the other side to really help him move, uh, really change that offensive line. I think Jackson Carmen out of Clemson is another decent guard prospect. He's got some character issues, but I think the Chiefs will be wise to take another offensive lineman to really make sure that Mahomes gets the uh, the protection he deserves. And then finally, the Buccaneers at 32 are going to take Gregory Russo, defensive end out of Miami. The Buccaneers returned pretty much all 22 starters from last season. There is no, there there is room to grow on the defensive line. That part of the team is getting old. Pierre Paul is getting old. Barrett is getting older. You need some youth on the defensive line. And Rousseau, who's potentially one of the best uh, defensive end prospects in the draft, he did not play. He opted out last season, so it could be a bit of a gamble here. And I think that the Buccaneers could get one of the best prospects in the draft if he falls to them because he didn't play last season. But... Um, I, I, I would wager that's a, probably the best move for a team that retained all 22 starters. And that's, again, absolutely obscene. That's very rare. And I think that's the first time it's ever happened in the Super Bowl era that a team that won the Super Bowl retained all 22 starters. You could still see some youth on the defensive uh, end or the defensive line. And if Russo proves to be more of a bust and a one-year wonder than a true top prospect... Hey, the Buccaneers are already winning Super Bowls. They're in win-now mode anyway. I think that's the way that they should go. And that is the first round of the NFL Draft. That is my mock draft. That is the hard-headed sports mock draft picks 1 through 32. I'm going to have the entire list up on your screen right over here. 
and you can see all the picks there. Thank you so much for watching this video. What do you think of this mock draft? How does it compare to yours? Let me know. Did I make any mistakes? Do you have people going higher? Do you have people going lower? It's almost draft time, ladies and gentlemen. Nine days away. We're almost getting there. It's going to be very interesting to see how volatile this draft truly can be. While we're on the uh, the topic of the NFL draft, I do want to quickly talk about Trevor Lawrence's comments that he made earlier last week. Uh, and why they're nothing. They, they don't really mean anything. Most people will say that they don't really mean anything, but there are some people that are saying, oh, this is a red flag for Lawrence. You know, the Jaguars should think twice about drafting him now. This is this is not a good look for Lawrence. And I, I hate to use this phrase because I find it so cringy and it's really just a generational Z, like a Gen Z uh, type of, of, of phrase, but it's not that serious, bro. It's not that serious. And I'll explain why. If you missed, you know, Trevor Lawrence's comments, he essentially said that he, you know, isn't playing with a huge chip on his shoulder. He's not playing with something extra or he's not planning on it going into the draft process. He's, he doesn't have that extra motivation behind him. He doesn't have a chip on his shoulder. And later he clarified that he does have internal motivation. He, you know, is willing to work hard. He, you know, wants to improve as a football player. He loves the game of football. He, li he lives and breathes football. And uh, I understand why he had to clarify these comments, but he really didn't. And the reason for this being is that Trevor Lawrence got caught with a Fisher question. He got caught fishing. Now, me and my me and the local beat, we call these types of questions fishers. And essentially, when you're going into an interview or a post-game press conference or whatever, when you've been in the business as long as I have, you hear the same questions or a variety of, or, or, or variation of the same question, depending on what happened during the game over and over and over and over again. And part of the, the cat and mouse game that is an interview with the media is trying to find a quote or an aspect of a quote that is interesting enough to make your story or bring some intrigue to your story. Because you'll hear the same quotes over and over again. And obviously it's a little bit different working with collegiate students and working on a college beat and covering college athletics and it is covering professionals because when you're dealing with 18 year olds to you know 21 year olds and 22 year olds depending on how long they're at that program you know these are kids these are, these are essentially you know high schoolers that you're talking to here and everybody's the same somebody's going to be more willing to answer a question somebody's not you're going to have to pick up how they talk or if they're talkers or not so there's a bit more of a cat and mouse game there but more to the point you ask people the same questions over and over and over again, and you continue to realize that, oh, these are just variations of the same question the more that you're working in the business. So the goal is to try and get an off-the-book answer to try and give the player more personality and likewise give your story a little bit more personality because you can ask, you know, a player or a coach, you know, what did you think about this play? What did you think about this player? What did you think about, you know, the way that the game was going? Did this affect you? Did this not affect you? What was your game plan going into it? Like you'll ask the same questions over and over again, but when you get a quote that is not what you're expecting. It's not the cookie cutter formulaic answer. That is when the media grabs hold of attention because we have been asking the same questions of these players over and over again for as, as long as history has been historying, historying English. Um, <laughs> so when, you know, and, and the way that you try and get these types of off the books answers is you throw some fishy questions. You throw fishers at these players, a, a question that's worded in such a way in which a response can be negative. It can be positive, but it's a unique 
It's a more unique question that could give a more unique answer. Because again, as I've been illustrating, we ask the same questions a lot or a variation of the same question. So what happened with Trevor Lawrence is he probably got asked, you know, what's your motivation going into the draft or, or some variation of that question. And he gave an off the book answer, which is why this got more attention. You know, the cookie cutter answer for these types of questions or for any prospect leading up to the draft is I am all about football. You know, whatever team takes a chance on me, I'll be, I'll, I'll love that city. I'll love that fans. I'll love that team. You know, the other 31 teams are going to make a huge mistake if they don't take me. I'm a hard worker. I'm, I'm the best player in this draft. I'm going to outwork anybody. I have a, a chip on my shoulder. I'm going to, you know, basically hyping themselves up to make their draft stock as much as possible. But Lawrence doesn't necessarily have that issue. He's probably going number one overall no matter what anybody does. I think everybody has Lawrence penciled in as the number one. So he doesn't have that luxury, but he does have the luxury of being a little bit more carefree with his answer. And of course, the media got an off the book answer, which is why everybody's like, oh, look what Trevor Lawrence said. And it's really not that big of a deal because we throw we as the media throw out these fishier questions, these fishing questions to try and, you know, to try and get, you know, a hook of fish and get an, an, a unique answer all the time all the time. So this this isn't a red flag for Lawrence. This isn't anything more than a just, you know, a, a, a non-cookie cutter answer to a, a more unique question. It's nothing. There are no red flags here. He, I understand why Lawrence had to clarify his comments, but he really didn't need to. And, you know, as I said, it's a little bit different working with, with you know, college athletes as it is working with professional athletes. And you'll learn that some players give better answers than others. Like getting a quote out of a baseball player is sheer torture. It feels like pulling your teeth out with pliers uh, because they are not, generally speaking, they're not talkers. Football players aren't necessarily talkers as well. Basketball players are actually more eloquent than you'd think they, that they were. Um, but, you know, it, it, sometimes it's hard to get quotes from different types of players. So when the media gets a hold of an off-the-wall quote, even if it's not that serious or that off-the-wall, you know, you're going to cling to it and run with it because, as I've been saying, we ask the same questions over and over again every single week, mostly every single day, for as long as we live and as long as we're working in this business. So that's why we kind of gravitate to those types of comments. And you wouldn't necessarily know that unless you, A, work in sports, or B, Watch a lot of post-game interviews in depth. So it's it's nothing. There's no red flags here. He's just not playing with a chip on his shoulder. And why should he? He was a perennial, you know, Heisman finalist. He's a national champion. Potentially one of the best quarterbacks to come out of the draft in the last, I don't know, four or five years. And, you know, it, if, if you know, you want to mark not playing with a chip on your shoulder, being that good of a quarterback already as a red flag, then so be it. I'm just telling you, and again, I find this phrase so cringy, it's not that serious, bro. It's not that serious. But I'll tell you what is serious, and it's super serious. It's a super league, uh, super serious super league. <laughs> um, in case you missed it, uh, a bunch of European football teams announced this mid-season competition called the Super League. And for those of you who are, you know, mostly into American sports, not necessarily into European sports, this is going to be directed mostly at you so I can help you kind of understand what's going on and why people are damning the Super League so severely. Because from a casual perspective, you think, oh man, all of these really big name teams are forming a competition. That sounds fantastic, but once you dig into the meat and the bones of what the Super League actually is, it's 
absolutely horrific for the sport of European football, and it's it's bad for all sports in general. And it, it, there's a lot of differences between American and European sports that play into this that I'm going to try and compare and contrast to make the level of understanding a little bit better. Because for me myself, like I said, I saw all this ginormous Super League form earlier this week, and I'm like, wow, that's actually kind of cool. But me being a casual fan, I didn't understand everything that went into it. And it wasn't until I started doing research, because this is actually the first time that I'm talking about European football on you know this show. You know, until I start, it wasn't until I did my research that I realized how horrific this is for sports. And I always, you know, plan on doing my research. I always make it a priority to do my research because I don't want to go in and start talking about something that I don't, you know, know what I'm talking about. I don't want to talk out of my area in which the sun don't shine. If you catch my drift, we're kind of keep trying to keep it PG. I don't, I don't like talking out of my butt. Uh, I, I like to know what I'm talking about. I don't want to act like I'm talking about when I really have no idea. So I was doing my research for this, and this Super League is bad news, ladies and gentlemen. It's bad news, and I'll try and explain why. So this Super League is consisting of teams from multiple different leagues, uh, multiple different countries. Uh, Europe, uh, excuse me, England, Italy, and Spain. And there are hoping to be more founders in this league. The league, the 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 league, I get the league is hoping for at least twenty teams to be founders uh, of the inaugural uh, season of this league. But the teams that were announced as being the initial founders were Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, Tottenham. I hope I pronounced that right. Along with three teams from Italy. AC Milan, Inter Milan, and Juventus, and then three more teams from Spain, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, and Real Madrid. And again, those are the initial members. Those are the quote-unquote elite teams in European football, which is kind of ironic considering that a lot of these teams are not necessarily elite at the moment. They haven't been elite for a while, and they're really just the most popular teams. And that's part of the reason why people are so outraged by that is that these, like, who says that these teams are without a doubt the best teams in European football at the moment? They do. But nobody else continues to think so. So it's really more of like a popularity contest. It feels more like a voting for a class president in fifth grade than it does feeling like forming of a very balanced and competitive Super League. You know, because some of these teams aren't not that good right now. Let's be frank about it. Um, but yeah, these are the founding members. They're looking to add at least 20. They're, they're 20 in total teams before this whole thing starts. And a lot of people are very pissed off and angry about this. Fans are angry. Players are angry. Teams are angry. Everybody's angry except for those teams involved. Uh, you, uh, the UFA president is angry. Everybody's so pissed off at this. It's And some people are calling it the Americanization of European football. And there are qualities of Americanization and franchisement in the Super League, but they're doing it horrifically wrong. Um, start to begin to like understand why this is so horrible for the sport. I think the place to start is to understand that European sports and American sports are different in terms of what they mean to the culture of our countries. American sports are all franchised. American sports are, you know, a select number of teams in select different markets, and there are no local roots for our sports. We're not locally invested in our sporting teams, at least for the most part. You know, we'll root for the closest team, or we'll root for the team that we like the best. Maybe we like a certain player. There are no local historical roots for our football teams, for instance. 
Like, I, I'm a Packers and a Miami Dolphins fan. I was born and raised in South Florida. The Dolphins just happened to be the closest, the team closest to me. I very well could have been a Tampa Bay fan. I could have been a Jacksonville Jaguars fan. But I was closest to Miami, so I, you know, grew up and gravitated towards being a Dolphins fan. That's not the way that it is in in Europe, especially primarily in, we'll just use England as an example. There are local roots, deep historical soccer history with a lot of these teams. And there is more invested. There's a lot of competition that the Super League is just throwing away by adding all the quote-unquote elite teams. And again, some of them are just popular team names because I imagine, as I read off the list, even the casual soccer fan will say, I recognize a lot of those names. They're not necessarily the elite teams anymore. They are the popular teams, quote-unquote. And so there's a lot of local competition that is being completely eliminated by the Super League because the Super League is essentially claiming these are the best teams. Nobody else can get in. It's like a closed club. It's a closed soccer club without even giving some of the little guys a chance to make it into that club. And essentially... It's a lot of greediness and money involved here because a lot of these teams are financially the most financially stable. They have the most to spend. They have the most to buy players. They have the best talent. They have the money to go out and spend, and they they earn billions and billions of dollars a year. These are the richest teams, and meanwhile, the other teams that may not be so rich are basically being hung out to dry. The rich get rich and the poor get poor, and it's eliminating all competition because part of the fun and the tension of European soccer is seeing your local team rise up the ranks and you know become and developing players and becoming an elite team whether you're a division one team division two and ultimately the goal is the premier league or the champions league essentially the super league is wiping all of that competition competition out of the out of out of the you know, out of the room it's saying there's no competition these are the best teams these are the teams that get to compete and they make all the money Whereas the little guys, again, are, are not making anything. I hope I'm communicating that clear enough. I'm trying to make sure that I cover, uh, you know, dot all my I's and cross all my T's. And I, I apologize if this is coming off as a little bit haphazardly. Uh, it's going to be a longer segment. I'm just trying to make sure that I do my due diligence with this segment here to uh, end the show. So... There's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of local history, hundreds and hundreds of years of local history that are being eliminated, and the competition is being completely eliminated because of the Super League. Now, what also appears to be the problem, and I'd like to compare this to what might happen in America, right? If this were happening in America, let's say it was happening with baseball, because baseball is mostly similar to soccer in terms of the development and the type of league that is. There's no salary cap in baseball, right? Teams can spend whatever they want within reason. There's there's a money cap just to make sure that the parity of the of the MLB is still viable. But obviously there are teams that spend more than others and have won more than others. So it would be like if the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Marlins, because you would want the, the Miami market, the, the Chicago Cubs and the White Sox, because if you have one, you have both. Uh, the, the Dodgers, the Giants, and... Um, I'm thinking of like another AL team potentially so, uh, regardless. So you take those best teams, the teams that spend the most money and we'll throw the Padres in there too, because they've been spending a lot of money recently. You take the teams with the most amount of money and say, okay, everybody else get out. We're forming our own little league. Everybody would be super pissed off, right? That's essentially what's happening over in Europe to draw a little bit of a comparison. And of course, again, that doesn't happen in you know basketball, football, hockey, because there is franchising in American sports. 
there are certain teams in certain markets and you root for the one that you like the most or is closest to you, there isn't any local roots. There isn't as much investment as there is in European soccer. So you can understand why players are getting so pissed off because, hey, the players are going to be looped into this specific group of Super League. They're talking about bans for players from world activities like with the World Cup. I'm talking about bans for the players that uh, you know play in the Super League. And it's completely damaging the competition of European football. And again, it's these select teams, and some of them aren't elite anymore, that are saying, we are the elite group, nobody else is allowed, we're going to make all the money. And again, it's, it's, it's so damaging because with the franchising in American sports, there is a salary cap, and that causes the parity in like the NHL and the NFL, where a different team wins the Super Bowl almost every single year. There are precautions made in these franchise league to make sure that even the bottom half of the league is supported as much as possible. What this super league is doing is making sure that the rich stay rich and the poor get poor. And there's no way that some of your local football teams, which again, there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears that gets poured into these super into these teams to make them as profitable as possible. You know, it it's just completely throwing that away and to have it happen Coming out of of a pandemic is also extremely, extremely, oh man, I want to use a bad word here, but I can't. It's a PG show. It's, it's, it's an extremely disgusting display because sure, some of these big elite teams might've been able to survive the COVID pandemic based on how much they bring in, in terms of merchandise and, and sales per year alone, because these are the quote unquote top teams. The little teams that have been ravaged by COVID, who haven't been able to make sales, who haven't had fans, who you know may not be as well known, that who are barely struggling to get through because of what the coronavirus pandemic has done to the world of sports. To have to have this super league formed fresh out of a pandemic that isn't even over yet. That's also something that's extremely, extremely disgusting. And the rich get rich and the poor get poor. It's all about the money here. It's all about the money. These teams are getting richer. There's no competition. It would it would damage heavily the competition of European football. And it's it's really horrific and horrible to see. So that's the end of the show, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening and watching. I appreciate the support. As always, the show will be up on YouTube as soon as possible. Make sure that you all stay happy and healthy. This has been the Hard-Headed Sports Podcast, episode number 38. My name is Nick Ryan. And with that all being said, stay hard-headed, but have a nice day.